We come then on our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 25 uh, of this chapter, thinking today of the Christian and employment, or the Christian and our work. So what is your boss like then? Whether in full-time or in part-time work, does the very mention of this subject make you nervous? Is he a reasonable man? Does she have mood, mood swings? Does he shout at his employees when they make mistakes? Is she sarcastic? Have you sometimes said, perhaps often said in frustration, there is no pleasing him? We recognize it is hard to be a good boss, and that's a, another subject, that's the other side of this sermon today. The boss has pressures that the employee never has. Pressures of getting jobs, pressures of finishing jobs, pressures of satisfying customers. And sometimes she takes her frustrations out on her staff. But we also recognize that power sometimes does strange things to people. People in positions of authority can misuse that authority or misinterpret its role. We say power corrupts. We have seen evidence of it in politics, in the south of Ireland, within the church, and in our workplace. And all of us have been a bit irritable under pressure. Verses 18 to 25, servants are addressed. Servants who could not move jobs, servants who had no rights of their own, who couldn't take matters to an employment tribunal. The word servants in verse 18 is domestic servants or slaves in a household. The idea of slavery here is very different from the Israelite slavery in Egypt or the slaves of the 18th century with which we're familiar. The slaves here were sometimes paid, sometimes educated. Some were doctors, teachers, musicians. There were 10 million of them in the Roman Empire of, a fit of 50 million. Slaves were all around. They could save enough money to buy their freedom. Some were slaves because of capture and, and war. Some were born into slavery. Some had to go into slavery because of debt. But they were stuck there in their social standing. They were limited in their choices. And in that enslavement, what added to their shame and difficulty sometimes was a master and employer who was cruel. And Peter includes them here in this paragraph in what Bible scholars call a household code. The code includes citizens, which we thought of last Sabbath evening, wives and husbands that we'll think of this evening, and here, servants. Codes were common in the first century among writers on ethics. But in those other codes, there was no mention of servants. They were too peripheral. They were too low in the social standings for their concern and their thought their instruction, their advice. But what a difference we find in the Bible that every woman, every man, 
Every rich, every poor person, every free, every enslaved is made in the image of God and deserving of the attention and love and instruction and encouragement of the Christian church. And so Peter here, breaking the custom of his time, the focus of his culture, devotes the largest section out of the three in this household code to encouraging and addressing the servants within the first century. And so in this congregation, everyone is important. There is no us and them. Men, women, children, young people, older people, rich, poor, native, immigrant, the unborn, all of us are equal, made in the image of God, in the sight of God, and in the sight of our congregation. Yes, there is an established authority. There are employees and employers. There are rulers and subjects. There are parents and children. There are elders and members. There are different roles. There is a God-established authority. But all of us are equal before God made in his likeness and in his image. And so we pray for everyone in our daily devotions in this congregation. And so we take a moment to talk to anyone, however old or young, that we bump into as we enter or leave the church. Because all are valuable in God's eyes. We have a knowledge and an interest in every man, every woman, every child. Here is a paragraph on servants, on slaves. Perhaps you're saying, well, we're not in a position of slavery now. Yes, my, my job and, and employment conditions might be difficult, but it's nowhere near being classified as slavery. We are free men and women and children, thank God. But servants or slaves in this paragraph is the closest parallel that we have to employees today in the New Testament writings. And we will see and we understand that there are many overlaps between this paragraph and the circumstances that we will live in and work in in our employment. Let's think then, first of all, of this specific command. Well done, Rachel. And the general principle and the ultimate example in this paragraph. Let's think of this specific command in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. Here the apostle continues his exposition of that general command in verse 13 that we thought of last week, be subject to every human institution. So here's another human institution he's thought of government. Here's another one, employers. In verse 13 to 17, he taught submission to government. Now he's teaching submission to our employer. And once more, the pastoral sensitivity of the apostle is evident in realizing the difficulty of this command. It's easy when our boss, he says in verse 18, is good and gentle. We enjoy going into work. It's a pleasure to work with him. He doesn't seem like a boss at all. He's good 
And he's gentle. He gives us holidays when we want. He gives us a pay rise every year. He lets us clock off at five o'clock on the dot early on a Friday. But it's hard when our employer is unjust. That's the focus of this paragraph, resonating with many of the readers in the first century. That's where they needed help and guidance and direction. What about when my master, my employer, is unjust? The word in verse 18 means crooked, dishonest, morally evil. It literally means bent, from which the English word scolosius comes, a word describing the disease of a curvature of the spine. Wayne Grudem imagines this term as describing a boss's dishonesty regarding pay, working conditions, and expectations. Lenski thinks that it means contrary commands given. A boss orders a thing to be done one way and then reprimands us for doing it that way and said he ordered it to be done a different way. It is unjust. It is crooked. The context suggests that the slaves are Christians and their employers are not Christians. And part of the reason for the unjust treatment they receive is because they are Christians. The boss just does not like them because of their commitment to Jesus. So the answer, the question has been asked and answered. How are we to live in such situations as followers of Jesus What are we to do in those moments of being treated unjustly sometimes just because we are a Christian? And the answer is, be subject with all respect. What does that mean? Being subject to an unjust boss is a hard command to fulfill. But it is made harder by the added element in this command of with all respect. Now, when I worked in the real world, the grueling nine to five, I had a boss, a bank manager in the branch I worked in who had a very short fuse. The least irritation set him off. One particular cause of his irritation, and this was always going to be a terrible day if this ever happened, was if he rung the bank doorbell at 8.55 and no one answered that door, he would rant at us when we eventually let him in. And we would all listen the next day for this bell being rung just before nine in the morning and sprint to open the door. And I remember some of the rollickings that people got from him. The hair dryer treatment which I received and they received from the boss in front of the whole office. But what struck me was that no one ever answered him back or walked away. Neither did any one of the 50 staff in that office leave or put in a transfer because of him. And my question is, and perhaps your question is, in a similar circumstance in your work, is that the respect that Peter means here? Be subject 
with all respect? Is it a stiff upper lip? Is it the developing of a hard skin, a steely resilience under unjust treatment? Is that what's being commanded here? I think there's something more included here. And it will help you. And it helped me and still helps me. The word respect in verse 18 is the same Greek word translated fear in verse 17. And the word fear in Peter's writings is usually used of the fear of God. And that, I think, is how we are to understand the word respect here, be subject with all fear, by using the wider context of the letter of Peter and the immediate context is also used in verse 2 of chapter 3. And so, you, me, them, when we stand there taking a rollicking unjustly, we're not just to be saying to ourselves, what an idiot he is, or merely not answering back. I have to, to respect his position, though I don't respect his character. But we're to stand there saying to ourselves, God will set things right one day. We submit with fear of God. Our mind is not to be on the piece of mortal clay in front of us, the sinning person before us or behind the desk, but on God, confident that he sees the scene and that he will act on our behalf. And that interpretation of respect is supported by the next verse, verse 19, when mindful of God in an unjust setting. We can't right every wrong. We can't stand up for ourselves in every situation. There are just times when we take the unjust treatment with fear of God. Romans 12, 19 advises us, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. The specific command Secondly, the general principle in verses 19 and 20. The apostle moves on, I think, from the specific command in verse 18 to submit to our boss to a general principle to, to guide us in times of being treated unfairly. He's focusing on the flashpoints in the employment scene, those times when we are treated unjustly, but the boss has all the power. Maybe our wages are much less than what we should be getting. Or, or maybe we are being overloaded with work because many people are leaving. And we are suffering unjustly. The principle he states in verse 19 is, when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a general principle in our Christian living and acting not just in the arena of employment. The principle is that often we are called to, required to, endure sorrows. We're not always to stand up for our rights. We're not always to answer back 
We're not always to try to win the argument. There are many times when we just take the hit, when we endure sorrows, suffering unjustly. Didn't Jesus make this very point when he taught us to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In 1 Corinthians 6, there's a very practical example of this principle. One believer was taking another believer to court. And the apostle, in the presence of, of arguing all of this and saying there are no elders in the church who could oversee this business and come to a decision, or he gives another option, he says. In verse 7, why do you not just suffer the wrong? In the interest of the peace in the church, in the interest of the greater good, why? Do you not just suffer the wrong? There are times when we're just to endure sorrow. Sometimes that's the only thing that we can do. The slaves in the first century reading this, some of them put to work in mines in Spain, wishing death more than life, just had to endure the sorrow. The single mom who cannot leave her job, though she has a terrible boss, and the boss knows that, just has to endure the sorrow. But there's other times that we are to choose to endure the sorrow. In the interest of peace, in the interest of the greater good, we embrace the sorrow, we, we adopt the sorrow, we choose the sorrow. David illustrates this principle. He was anointed to be king. Appointed to serve in Saul's army, but his boss was jealous of his gifts, of his popularity, of his success, and persecute him. And there came that moment in the cave when David had Saul's life in his hand, and he could have ended this oppression and trouble and persecution, but he chose to endure the sorrow. He let Saul live, and as a result, David had to flee to the land of the Philistines. He endured years of trouble after that, but he chose to endure the sorrow. And he was called a man after God's own heart. So we don't always have to demand our rights to stand up for what we think we deserve. Here's a principle for us to adopt, to choose. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The sorrow of false accusation, wrong discipline, or unjust verbal reprimand. And how does Peter evaluate this situation? This time of enduring sorrow unjustly. He states two things about it. First, he calls suffering unjustly credit in verse 20. People contrast the times when we are justly reprimanded for wrongdoing. We're to take that. We're to accept that. When the times we are unjustly reprimanded, verse 20. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There's no credit 
when we do wrong and are punished for it. We're paying our due. We're getting what we deserve and we're not to whinge about it. There's no credit there. But its implication is that there is credit. There is a plus. There is a good being done. We are in the black. We're above the line. We're in the area of the positive. When we suffer unjustly and endure it, there is credit. Verse 20. We're not to consider this as any way of contributing to our salvation, of course. Our deeds outweighing our bad deeds, for even our best is imperfect. But nonetheless, the word credit is used. There will be good done to others by our patient endurance of unjust treatment. And there will be a reward from God for our serving and suffering for our Lord. But the second point he makes is that in the sight of God, such suffering unjustly is noticed and considered by God to be a gracious thing. Verse 19 and 20. That is, God judges a restraint in the presence of unjust treatment to be an evidence not of our weakness or some perverse love of suffering by us, but a gracious thing. He considers a restraint and endurance in the Christian life to be the outworking of his saving grace in our hearts. The bully, the unjust boss, the acerbic slanderer gets a kick out of treating her prey unjustly. But God sees a reflection of his own attribute of grace in the behavior of the unjust sufferer. Grace is us giving what others do not deserve. And in that moment of unjust suffering, the sufferer gives the oppressor what he does not deserve. He gives him submission, silence, deference, politeness, courteousness. The person giving out the verbal abuse perhaps deserves a punch on the nose. But we give them what they don't deserve. This is not the Stockholm Syndrome that's been described where the captive falls in love with her captor. She is spending so much time with him that she is completely dependent on him. She has no one else in her life and she falls in love with him. It's madness and wrong on many levels. But this enduring sorrows, this heavenly grace worked in our souls while suffering unjustly is crucial and challenging for us. We often have the opportunity to stand up for ourselves, to insist on our rights, to take someone to court, to win an argument at all costs. But here we're being challenged at times to endure sorrows. When we're in that situation of suffering, we're to remember that there might just be a better way. That the way of grace is superior to the way of vengeance. That the way of restraint often beats the way of personal revenge. That sometimes for the greater good and for the peace in the workplace, in the family, in the congregation, in the board of deacons, in the church session, we will bite our lip. We will say nothing in our defense. 
we will endure sorrows, suffering unjustly, knowing that God's eye is on us. Lastly, the ultimate example. The amazing pastor and preacher that Peter is gives us an example of the teaching he has been given of enduring sorrows and suffering unjustly. He uses metaphors and then an example to give us here. The metaphors he uses, the word example that he uses here, the word refers to instruction in writing. In the first century, the teacher wrote the letters at the top of the page and then the pupils copied them. The curves, the straight parts of the letter, the capital letters, the small letters, they were copied. The example that Peter is going to give to us is the example of the Lord Jesus who endured sorrows, suffering unjustly, and we are to follow his example. The second metaphor is in the words, follow in his steps, a phrase referring to disciples who chose a rabbi and would follow not only their instruction and their practice, but literally follow them around, walking in their footsteps along the roads and avenues of Palestine. The example is Jesus. He endured sorrows, suffering unjustly. And in this wonderful part of 1 Peter and, and, and in the whole Bible, the apostle shows us two levels of Jesus' suffering. He suffered on level one by false accusation, verse 21. He was reviled by the Sanhedrin, by Herod, by the religious leaders around the cross, by the dying men beside him for a time. He was accused of all kinds of wrongs. He was reviled. But in response to that, Jesus was silent. He showed restraint. He did not revile in return. He suffered those sorrows of false accusation. He suffered, Peter says, physically at the hands of men, verse 23, the mocking, the beating, the crucifixion. But in that suffering, that physical suffering, he threatened not. Here is our example. Here are the letters that are set out at the top of the page for us to follow. Here are the footsteps that we are to tread in. Jesus suffering enduring sorrow unjustly. But then he takes us to, to another level. In verse 22, he himself bore our sins, verse 24. In verse 22, he committed no sin. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins. Here is a higher level. Here is Jesus suffering, enduring, dying for sins he never did. The tree is a deliberate and graphic term for the horrors of crucifixion, for the curse of God. He did no sin, but he suffered for our sin. Have you ever gone to a painting class 
You attain some level of ability at the end of the three months course, but you know that you're nowhere near the level of your master. And, and this is the idea here. We can get to level one and in some way we relate to Jesus, that false accusation. But there is another level, level two, where Jesus endures God's judgment, a suffering which we can never reach and do not need to reach because he has suffered for our sins in our place. And yet that second level of suffering encourages us and helps us. And we reason today, if Jesus suffered so much for me, then I will willingly suffer as a Christian for him. Two significant aspects of suffering uh, in closing uh, are indicated in this paragraph. One is God's purpose. In the unjust suffering of Jesus, God was working out his purpose. Where was God in the judgment hall of Pilate or when Jesus was being beaten at the whipping post or when he was hanging on the cross? God was there in his sovereignty working out his purpose so too in our unjust suffering. We have that assurance and confidence that our God is with us, working out his purpose. The writer ends with the change that has taken place in our life through the grace of Christ. He describes us now as alive, as healed, as returned. We've been made alive by Jesus in our salvation to this new approach to justice, to restraint, to gracious behavior, to forgiveness. We're alive. There's a, there's a new way of dealing with things now, of dealing with injustice, something that we were dead to. We always stood on our rights. We always got what was, what was our due, but now we're different. We're made alive now by the grace and spirit of Christ, and there's new options that are opening up there for us. We've been healed in our salvation from being touchy people, from flying off the handle at the least provocation, from being holders of grudges. We are healed from those illnesses and those sicknesses by the grace of Christ. And we have returned to the guardian of our souls, to the shepherd who protects his sheep, the overseer of the church, our king who defends his people in the settings of injustice and who says to the harmers of his children, touch not my anointed. Do my prophets no harm. And who says through Zechariah, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye.